This is With You in the Weeds. Do you ever find yourself stuck in between what you know to be true and what you actually experience? Or the difference between where you are and where you want to be? Well, if so, you're in the weeds. And like weeds, those tough places keep coming back. I'm Lynn Rausch. And I'm John Tennant. As counselors, Lynn and I deal with those weeds all the time. Together, we designed this podcast because we want to be with you in those weeds, kind of like God desires to be with us. Hmm. Now, that idea will change everything. So we hope you'll listen in and let us be with you in the weeds. Let's get started. In this episode, we talk about the pugnacious, the oppressive, the vexing person who is unrepentant, a person who does not look at their own patterns. They don't realize the impact they have on someone. They're actually, if you want to pull in biblical language, they're sort of in love with their sin. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. They don't see their hearts accurately. And it's really hard to deal with a person like this. Really, honestly, only God can bring about change. We'll get into that in a little bit. But there are a few things that we can do. And we want to help you, the listener, if you're dealing with a difficult person, a very complicated person, there are some strategies that you can use that will give you some power and you won't feel so helpless. Um, hey, John. Hi. Well, yeah, we might as well do a hello. <laughs> so I'm John and we're here with with you in the weeds and I'm with Austin. Hey. And I'm with Lynn. Hey, John. How's it going? Yeah. And so... As usual, I'm a microphone hog, so I just start talking. <laughs> we yeah. just have to insert ourselves. We yeah. just have to no, jump in. No, please just jump kidding. in. When John gets going, that train doesn't stop. <laughs> and a lot of times you have some good trains going. Yeah, so. you know, my wife says you hit the play button and it just keeps going. You got to hit pause. <laughs> anyway, you keep going. Yeah. So really, people who are difficult to deal with, uh, what what can we do? And with difficult people, if you don't have any like dance moves that you can use, you don't have any strategies, you end up feeling really helpless and powerless. And then that leads to bitterness, resentment, anger. So we're going to give you some strategies today. But ultimately, as we're talking about unrepentant, repentant, um, we have to keep in mind the Bible says repentance is a gift from God. Second Timothy 2, Paul tells Timothy as he's working with people, He is to be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, gently correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, Hmm. leading to the knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses. I love that phrase. The message puts it like this. God's servant must not be argumentative, but a gentle listener and a teacher who keeps cool, working firmly but patiently with those who refuse to obey. Now, you never know how or when God might sober them up with a change of heart. So from that concept, those two scripture passages, it's actually one passage, two translations, two key components, repentance, a real change of heart, a coming to one's senses is a gift from God. Only God can produce this. And that that gives us some freedom. We can stop trying to do what only God can do. So when we're dealing with an unrepentant person, the second thing that we pull from this passage that we've looked at is we can use strategies. Uh, We can be 
kind, we can be gentle, we can correct, we can be patient, but we need strategies to help us do that. And that's going to hopefully create an environment that encourages someone to soften up and become repentant. Yeah, I think this is such a great topic, and I'm so glad that we're doing this series, Managing Difficult People, because let's be honest, I think we all have a difficult person in our life, at least one, maybe more. (laughs) If you're not sure if you do, you might be the difficult person. (laughs) There you go. Good good self-diagnostic there. Um, But what I've come to understand is that there really is no comfortable solution to dealing with someone who is unrepentant or hard-hearted. It's it's just hard. I I look for an easy way out. I don't know about you guys, but I'm conflict avoidant and I would much rather just bury my head in the sand and avoid difficult people, but I think today's discussion for someone like myself but but others that are out there, it's going to be really helpful for us because we need to start to see what is happening beneath the surface when you're dealing with an unrepentant person. So I was thinking of a way to conceptualize this topic and I came up with all things 3D artwork. Did you guys ever get this? I remember that. Yeah, Yeah. it was kind of all the rage, so to speak, back in the late 90s. And so, you know, when you first looked at this picture frame, all you see is this 2D, really busy image with all these pixels. But then, you know, you got to cross your eyes and you got to stand back. And if you look at it just the right way, this image can jump out at you. And I remember seeing one for the first time at my buddy's house when I was like 14. You know, it took me a while, ended up with a headache, but eventually I saw this like fighter jet that, that popped out. So anyway, what does any of this have to do with the unrepentant person? Well, when you look at these pictures, you've got to use 2D vision and 3D vision. That 2D vision is just seeing the flat picture. Nothing really jumps out at you. But 3D vision is seeing that hidden image that jumps out. And it's not natural. It takes some work to do, but eventually it's there. In the same way, we can have 2D and 3D vision concerning the unrepentant person. So you're really playing with your imagination. Exactly right. Can you imagine what it would look like if this person would repent. Exactly right. 2D vision is seeing the unrepentant person with, we'll call it worldly vision. Mm, mm-hmm. And what I mean is that, you know, we're skeptical that they're ever going to change. We're bitter at what they're doing to us, to others around us, to the systems that they're affecting. And seeing with 2D vision might mean that we're scheming as to how we can take revenge on this person or daydreaming as to how we might inflict pain on them because of the pain they've caused us or others. And this kind of vision, it's informed by and promoted by the broader culture, worldly, unbelieving culture. Very cynical. Cynical. And I'll be honest, seeing the unrepentant person with 2D vision is a lot easier and a lot more natural for me. And from a spiritual perspective, Satan loves this. He loves it when we view the unrepentant person only with 2D vision, because it means that we're not using our 3D vision. So what's 3D vision? Yeah, 3D vision, it's viewing the unrepentant person from a biblical perspective. It's it's hard. It's not natural. It takes time. And, and you might even need to have others help you see it. But here's what that means. It means that this unrepentant person is not just sinning against other people in their life. It means that we realize they're sinning against the God of the universe, King Jesus, the one who made them and loves them. You know, seeing with 3D vision means that we remember remember the ultimate goal, their repentance before God. Mm-hmm. And this, uh, you know, this is personally the most difficult for me. It also means having some compassion for them. 
and in some ways being broken and sad for them because of what they're doing. And I'm getting this uh, primarily from Matthew 9, 36, which says, when Jesus saw the crowds of the people, he had compassion for them because they were sheep without a shepherd. Was everybody in those crowds completely innocent? No, I don't think so. I think they were complicated people just like there are in our lives today. I think there were some unrepentant people in those crowds. And yet Jesus had compassion for them because he realized they were sheep without a shepherd going their own way. Now, you know, something that helps me with this, can I just bring this down to like practical shoe leather? Seeing that person and realizing everyone carries around a bag of their own hurt. Mm-hmm. So what's happened to this person? Yeah. Like where have they been hurt? That that enables me to have a sliver mm-hmm. of compassion. Yeah. So thinking not just what are they doing to me, but what happened to them. That's a really good point. Mm-hmm. And, you know, last thing for me, seeing with 3D vision, it doesn't come at the expense of being wise about setting boundaries and protecting ourselves or our loved ones. In many ways, we have to do that. And we'll get back to that here in, in a little bit. But I hope you guys hear that seeing the unrepentant person with 3D vision also includes seeing things from a vertical perspective and considering the ultimate goal, which is repentance before God. Yeah, well, I have a confession to make here. Every time I have looked at one of those 3D pictures, I've never been able to see the image. <laughs> Lynn's playing along, like, oh yeah, I, I see I do, it. I do. I'm like, yeah, oh, that's really cool. But like uh, inside, I'm like, I see nothing. Mm-hmm. All I see is like the little dots on the page. So. I don't spend enough time because I'm impatient. I don't listen well and I don't see very well. So. <laughs> well, here we are, just yeah. uh, three bumbling people trying to have 3D vision. But I, I really do like this illustration, Austin. And one of the reasons is because I think that this metaphor of sight and vision is used in scripture really often concerning our spiritual condition. So if you think about it, the Bible describes spiritual darkness as a condition where we are unable to see ourselves accurately. We we don't understand who God is. We don't see that Jesus is who he claimed to be, which is the Son of God. So we're really living this two-dimensional life And I think the main point that I want to make in tackling the topic of how to deal with the unrepentant heart or the hard-hearted person, or John, as you said, a pugnacious person, which people can (laughs) go up and figure out what word that means. But basically, if we're listening here and we're seeing the signs of unrepentance in ourselves or maybe another person, what I want us to come to is understand one simple concept. And this takes 3D vision to see, but this concept is essentially that the diagnosis is the cure. What do you mean by that? Well, what I mean is that throughout the Bible, the story of redemption is narrowed down to one main proposition. Can I see myself and diagnose myself accurately? Can I accept God's clinical diagnosis, if you will? Here we are, three therapists, right? Mm. Um, God's clinical diagnosis that our hearts are deceitful above all else and desperately sick. And that's a quote from Jeremiah 17, 9. And basically what it means is that all that God requires for our redemption is an acknowledgement that he is correct, that his diagnosis is right. Mm. And as soon as we do that, as soon as we can humble ourselves and say, yep, God, you're right, That's the cure. Like we've seen the light. We get it now. We understand 
that we're humbled before God, we are dependent on him, we are in bondage to our sin, we need a rescuer, we need a savior. And that's essentially what it takes. And if you've noticed when you see the word repent used in scripture, it's usually paired with the word believe. So the mandate that we hear is repent and believe, repent and believe. So the idea is see yourself accurately and then trust that God has the cure. He sent the Savior. He sent Jesus. He sent our redemption. That is the remedy for our ailment. And now we're on a path of God is going to regenerate our hearts. We're going to have this happen over the course of our lifetime. We're going to see outward moral and characterological transformation. Sometimes in the scripture, this is referred to we're given new life or we're maybe being made alive in Christ or we're washed clean or given a new heart. There's tons of metaphors that we can look to here. But ultimately, this is a work of the Spirit. John, as you said, it's a work of God. We do participate in that work, but it starts with an accurate self-perception, an accurate diagnosis or, you know, a 3D vision, if you will. Now, I will say that the modern mind rejects this diagnosis. And maybe you're listening and you're bristling a little bit as we're talking about repentance. And that's because we're not really encouraged to do this type of self-reflection. I would say that we're coached into a mindset that people are innately good. We don't have moral defects. Maybe bad things happen to us, but it's, you know, we can blame our environment for that. But we don't like to think about this idea that we carry this burden of sin that only Jesus can deal with. But I would just argue that unless we have this accurate view of ourselves, we won't have a sense as to why we need rescuing. Why do I need to repent? Why do I need redemption? So it all starts with the diagnosis is the cure. Can we accurately diagnose ourselves? So really... uh Austin, did you want to make some comment about the modern mind? Well, yeah. When I when I hear modern mind, and Lynn, I'm guessing this is what you're thinking about. This is just a way of seeing the world that has no room for God, mm-hmm. no room for any sort of supernatural influence. An ancient mindset very much believed this, particularly the Jewish people in the Hebrew scriptures. They believed that God was alive and well and all these things. Modern mindset, no way. Yeah. There's no room for God. It's only horizontal. And that's the mindset that says, oh, we are inherently good. We have no problem before God. And the story of the Bible, this is why we need this. It starts with creation. And that says that God gave dignity and value to people. And so this is where we need to start. But what the modern mindset doesn't account for and outright rejects is the rebellion, the fall, Genesis 3. You know, Adam and Eve's choice sinful choice spread to every person. And now we come out of that box, so to speak, you know, with our default set to rejecting God and not wanting to know him and believing that he knows best. And so this is the mindset and the heart stance that needs to be repented of. And like we've been talking about, the desire to repent, that's given to us Mm. by Jesus. Now Mm -hmm. we have to make that choice and that choice matters and we're held accountable to that choice, but we are responding to God's work. And like we've been saying, the secular culture, especially therapeutic culture, has no category for this. Mm-hmm. And I think it, our listeners, we, you need to hear this because you just need to know the air that you're breathing. Yeah. So what we're going to do is we all have this sin virus. That's what I'm hearing us all say. And we have to realize it's a virus and it 
works inside of us and it's intelligent and it morphs and it distorts everything. So what we can do if we're going to treat this virus is we can start to address some of the symptoms with an unrepentant person. We can't cure them of the virus, but we can introduce some ingredients that will invite them and give them an incentive to pause, look, reflect, and maybe if they pause, look, and reflect, God will grant them the ability to see more three-dimensionally, mm -hmm. like what's going on. Because we're going to rely upon God to do what only he can do. But what can we do? Mm -hmm. John, you mentioned ingredients uh, for what we need to do, and I love that, and we're going to get there. But I was also just thinking about, and we talked about this in our planning meeting, just how we really need wisdom to do this. Lynn, tell us a little bit more about what that means. Yeah, this is really a lifelong pursuit. And I would say in my 15 years of doing counseling, my primary prayer has been, God, give me a heart of wisdom. It's it's really been a prayer of give me this 3D vision. Help me put the right glasses on so that I can see beyond what is seen by human eyes. Because like you said, when we only see with human eyes, we will respond with anger rage, we'll seek vengeance, we'll get defensive, we want to prove ourselves right in the matter. But when I read James 3, 17 to 18, it describes wisdom from above, right? It's that heavenly wisdom. It's not earthly, it's heavenly. And it's described as this. It says, but wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So think of all of these words, pure, like we don't have ulterior motives. We're not self-glorifying. We're peaceable. We, we have this desire to live at peace as far as it depends on us. It's reasonable. We're being rational. We're being prudent. We are sticking with reality. We want to be gentle, and that means being willing to listen having compassion, as you said, that, you know, people carry baggage from all different things. Um, we can be firm when needed, but we're still gentle. We're full of mercy and good fruits. We're growing in that compassion for other people and our humility in seeing ourselves as sinners as well. And, you know, we're unwavering, like we're grounded in the truth. We're, we're trusting that God is revealing truth to us, and we're going to stand on that. And we're not going to be hypocrites. We're not going to demand something of someone that we are not willing to do ourselves. That takes integrity. So again, the goal of this seeking wisdom is not to change another person, but it's for us to be healthy. It's for us to have spiritual sight and insight. We want to walk in the light of this truth, live by this truth. And if we're dealing with an unrepentant person, our integrity is key in this matter. Yeah, Lynn, that's really a good description of wisdom. I remember once, the very first time I took a church to be a pastor, I had an older pastor look at me, and I'll never forget this. He said, Tenen, you're going to need more wisdom than you have. Yes. <laughs> and really, we need help from God Absolutely. to position ourselves, like to interact creatively with difficult people. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important to differentiate between a goal and a desire as we get more practical about this. Yeah, because I think we often go into these difficult relationships thinking there's something I can do to get them to repent. 
We have this goal or agenda in our minds that is essentially summed up with, I can get them to see the error of their ways. But, Big mistake, but, yeah. Yeah, and that's really what gets us entangled mm-hmm. into these difficult people. But wisdom says that we can't approach this relationship as having a goal to get them to do anything. Instead, we may acknowledge, I really want them to repent. I'd love it if they repented. I deeply desire or long for their repentance. But that is a genuine work of the Spirit. And only God can make a blind man see. Only God can make a deaf man hear. Only God can soften the hardened heart of an unrepentant person. And what I like about that is that it takes the pressure off of you, off of us, to think that there's something we can do to fix, change, or control another person. Yeah, that's a great distinction. Take the pressure off. Now, the question is, once the pressure is off, what do we actually do? Mm -hmm. And that's what we're going to get into when we come back. We'll be right back in a jiffy. But we want to take a quick pause to say thank you. Thank you so much for listening in. If you like what you're hearing, think about texting this episode to a friend. And find us on Instagram at with you in the weeds. Okay, in this section of the episode, we want to start getting really practical and give you some strategies for like how to deal with the unrepentant person. And essentially, it is the art of setting limits, mm-hmm. to put it very simply. Because in dealing with an unrepentant person, you have to lead with limits. This is the only way that an unrepentant person will have a chance to learn. It's like with little kids. You lead with addressing their behaviors. Hey, stop hitting your sister in the nose, and you stop that. Then you can talk about what was going on. So limits become an incentive for the oppressor to grow. If you're vulnerable with an unrepentant person, they will drive you into the ground, baby, because they thrive on it. Mm. So limits really are not about controlling the other person. You can't control anybody. But you're protecting yourself from being driven into the ground. You're giving an invitation, an incentive to this oppressor, and you're essentially influencing and intervening. So I want to give you a couple of things you can think about, three moves, if you will, to use with an unrepentant person to give them an incentive Mm -hmm. to want to control their behavior. So here they are, and they're increasing in intensity as we navigate with the unrepentant person. So the least invasive and the most gentle way to begin is what I call the invitation. It's the ask. You're asking the person, would you be willing to stop, let's say, talking to me like that? And the beauty of that question is it has a hook in it. I'm asking you humbly, would you be willing to stop X? And the willingness to do it is yours. And the unwillingness to do it is yours. And what this does is it forces the person to slow down and to look at what they value or what they don't value. Essentially, it's a very subtle way to shine a very bright light on the person's core desire for what they want in the relationship. Now, this is not an angry sounding intervention. Anger actually is how someone acts when they don't feel powerful. So as you use some of these strategies, you feel more power 
in relating to the jerky person in your life. Mm -hmm. And your anger level actually will go down because your power level is going up. The reason jerky people are angry and they use manipulating behavior is because they're very fragile someplace inside. So the first one is the least invasive, most gentle. Would you be willing to stop Great. That's the invitation. Mm -hmm. That's the invitation. Great question. Yep. All right. The second one is a little more difficult and probably um, one of the trickiest to use. And it's the mirror. It's like a psychological mirror. Remember show and tell in elementary school? The way to understand a psychological mirror is a little bit different, but similar. Instead of show and tell, it's show and ask. So the first step is to show them reality. Show them the reality that they're creating. Hold up a mirror in front of them. And a mirror doesn't nag, judge, direct, control, manipulate, or get angry. It simply shows you what's there. So let me give you a real simple example. Here's the show. Here's the mirror. Every time you talk to me that way, I feel something in my heart close down, and I want to pull away. Our relationship really takes a hit every time you talk to me that way. So you're just holding up the mirror and you're showing them. What I noticed, John, you used I statements throughout that whole thing. Exactly. Yeah, you're not you're, saying you, you're saying I, this is how you affected me. Yep, this is the impact you're having on me. You're showing them reality with the mirror. Now here comes the ask. Is that what you want? Mm -hmm. Do you want me to pull away? Do you want our relationship to take a hit? And I'll say it gives them the freedom that if they want to keep doing that, they can but you are going to have your own response to that. Like you're going to pull away. You're not going to be available. Like there's a two-way street that's happening there. Exactly. And you know what else I just thought of as you are saying that is they have to face that they have chosen, yes, I want this. Mm -hmm. Right. So now it's explicit. That's right. the beauty of the mirror. Mm -hmm. If you're dealing with an unrepentant person and you engage the specific details or the content of what this person puts out there, you're putting yourself in a danger spot. It's like you're pulling a seat up at their table saying, hey, just go ahead, give me more, give me another one. Example, okay? You show up for a family dinner and your mother-in-law, let's say she always makes comments about how your kids don't behave. Maybe they say something like, well, when I raised my little Billy, <laughs> I wouldn't let him do the things that you let him do. Now, don't engage the content. Okay, we're going to go for the big picture here because the unrepentant person is comparing you, criticizing. This is their style of relating. So you're going to show them the mirror. And a mirror response would be, here comes the show. You know, I've noticed you really like thinking about how you parented Billy, my husband, your son. You're holding up a mirror. You're showing her this is what you like to do. Now here comes the ask. I've noticed you really like thinking about how you parented, Billy. Are there things you would have done differently if you could do it over again? Now, if you engage the content, so there's the show and there's the ask. You're staying big picture. If you engage the content, well, what do you think is so wrong with what I let my kids mm -hmm. do? Okay, now you're pulling up a seat. You're playing their game. Mm -hmm. The mirror is beautiful. You're holding up, hey, this is what you like talking about. What's the ask? John, as you say all this, this is so great. 
And I'm thinking, I would love to be this calm, this cool, <laughs> this collected as I say this. What would you say to somebody who's maybe like me, a little not skeptical, but just have questions? This sounds great on paper and practice, but what about in real life? I think that is an awesome comment, and I'm right with you. And what I tell my clients to do is prepare ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Start, if you have to put it on an index card, mm-hmm. memorize. If it's, if it's an unrepentant person, it's a pattern. You're seeing this over and over again. Mm-hmm. So change the game. Write down, what am I going to do next time mom criticizes my parenting? Mm. And what's the ask that yeah. I'm going to put out there? And the other thing I've told clients too is like, this is hard. Very. And it's like riding a bike for the first time. You're probably not going to do it right, but guess what? You can get back on, you can do it again, and it'll get easier over time with practice. Absolutely. The principle here is you're going to be treated as poorly as you allow people to treat you. Mm-hmm. And for an unrepentant person, their growth hinges upon the growth of the person they're oppressing. So you're going to give them an, an incentive. You're going to invite them. Okay. That's step one. The other incentive is use the mirror Mm -hmm. and the ask. The third one is consequences, okay? The reason unrepentant people are so jerky, like I said before, they're fragile. And what the oppressive, unrepentant person needs from you is limits. So if the first two don't work, you go for the third one. And basically, we're going to let their behavior change the way we relate to them. If they hurt you, it will change the way that you react or respond. And they have to have a cost for their behavior. This is really difficult for people uh, because it's costly. You know, it causes disruption in the relationship. So don't even start thinking about these things, Lynn, you said earlier, as easy ways to smooth things over. Mm -hmm. Now, you're going in to create a problem, Mm -hmm. but the problem is not you. You're simply letting that unrepentant person see the problem they're creating. All right, so at this point, if the invitation doesn't work, if the mirror doesn't work, we're going to add some consequences, okay? So I'll give you two examples, one from a friendship, one from a marriage. So let's say in a friendship, your friend gossips about you to other friends, makes fun of you when you're at events together, and it's really uncomfortable for you, okay? You do the first two moves. If they're not willing to shift their behavior, then the consequence might be if you don't stop, I'm not asking you over the next time I do movie night mm-hmm. I, because that is not good for me. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not retaliation. It's simply reality with a consequence. Uh, another story, had a client a uh, number of years ago whose husband treated her very poorly at home, but expected her to show up for big company parties like at Christmas and whatnot to make him look good. Mm-hmm. So I counseled her, look, why don't you just tell him if you want me to be at your parties and make you look good, you need to treat me day in and day out in a way that shows respect to me. So don't expect me to make you look good when you treat me so poorly. Mm -hmm. If you can't change the way you relate to me, I'm not coming to your next business party. There's the consequence. Yep. There you go. You hit a real turning point, like with relationships, when you like stop asking the question, why in the heck does this person keep doing this to me? And instead you start asking the question, why don't I know how to better (laughs) respond to such a difficult person? Mm -hmm. Okay, John, if if I'm putting my skeptical hat on and let's say I've tried all those things, 
and for whatever reason, they're still not working, then what? Is there kind of like some backup plans after that? What would you say? Yeah, I would say, Austin, if the three moves don't work, um, there are two other options. Bring in another person because jerkiness only works in secret. Uh, maybe you bring a friend, a brother, uh, your in-laws, you know, somebody to say, look, Biff here will not hear me. Can you give him your perspective on what you've seen? Because it sounds like you see the same thing. And then the other one is just separate, like a medicinal separation, if you will. Like it's not good for us to be around each other. So if you're going to continue to do this, I have to remove myself. Yeah, and that's a great point. And here's where I really want to explain the idea of detachment, because that is a form of separation. Because when we engage an unrepentant person, what we find is that things are either going to move forward or move backward. This person is going to either soften towards you and say, hey, I get it. Thanks for bringing this to my attention. I want to work on this with you. Or their heart is going to harden towards you. Either way, the status quo in your relationship is going to change. And so one of the things that I work on most often with clients is healthy detachment. Or maybe we could call this as loving someone from a distance. And I'm going to talk mm. about five examples of what healthy detachment might look like. So detachment means that you don't stop caring about this person. It just means you recognize that you can't do for them what they can only do for themselves. Detachment means that you shouldn't enable a person, but you need to allow them to learn from the natural consequences of those actions. John, you talked about what those consequences could look like. Detachment means that you should not try to change or blame another person. You can only take responsibility for yourself. Detachment means that you're not going to try to fix, change, or control someone, but you're going to support them when you do see them making positive changes. And lastly, I would just say that essentially detachment means you're not trying to buffer someone from reality. You're permitting them to face reality because that is what God is going to use in their life to help bring them into that state of repentance. Lynn, I can personally speak to how helpful this sheet has been. Mm -hmm. I've used this with clients as well. And and it's like people's eyes are just yes. open wide. They're like, oh my gosh, this is an option. The light now, bulb goes on. Yeah, mm -hmm. and it's really hard and we have to practice and talk about what that means and doesn't mean. But overall, it's really, really healthy. So I hope you guys take some of that and apply it as you see fit. Um, just maybe one more transition here. And, and I was thinking about this. Just three things to remember as you try and deal with an unrepentant person. We've talked through strategies and all these things. And if and when you get you know, into the weeds and you find yourself lost and tired, whatever, here's just three things to remember. First, repentance takes time. Yeah, I remember a time uh, where I had a lot of conflict with a guy that did a lot of damage. And there was a lot of work that we did where I used the mirror. I used friends to come in and talk things through, nothing seemed to work. This person was just fixated on what he thought was right, and he wasn't going to budge an inch. And we came to a point where we both recognized we're both going to disagree on this. We need to go our separate ways. Recently, and this is very rare, and it 13 years after that, mm. recently I received a phone call and I'm telling you, this is probably the only time I've ever had this happen in my life where the person said, I want to specifically and in particular ways 
talk with you face to face about what I did that was hurtful and I want to repent. Wow. And how long did that take? 13 years. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. But you know what? I was detached for 13 years mm -hmm. and God did work. Yeah. yeah. I, lo I love that story. And you mentioned how rare it is. I, I would agree with that. I rarely see someone, even in all the years I've done counseling, who's truly undone. You know, the prophet Isaiah talks about, uh, you know, when he's met with God's holiness, he says, woe is me for I am undone. He got this accurate vision of who he was before God. And even as long as I've been a Christian for myself, I can only think of a couple of times that I was so deeply undone and I was so acutely aware of my sin and humbled to that point of deep and genuine repentance where I didn't care what anybody else thought about me but God. And I long for that. I pray for that. But it's a scary place to go emotionally because it is so exposing. It's so humbling, but yet that's the heart that God loves is a repentant, softened heart. And it brought joy to you when that happened. Yeah, it's very healing and very cleansing when you get to that. Very freeing. Point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So three things to remember about repentance. One, it takes time. Two, it's really rare. And three, it's worth it to keep fighting for it. You know, Lynn, when we were talking, you mentioned repentance is really rare. I just immediately went to, well, then what's the point? Like, why should I even hope for this? And then I was reminded of a particular story. So in my own life, in our own life. So years ago, Polly and I, we had a girl who babysit our kiddos when we were kind of in the trenches. I think they were one, three, and six or something like that. She was fantastic. Parents, if you have a babysitter that's fantastic, you know, you hold on to them for dear life. You <laughs> pay <don't> them share, well. <laughs> you pay them well. You don't share the contact info. Anyway, <laughs> she loved our kids so well and would go above and beyond. She would stay late after she put them down and talk with us, talk with her, with us about her. And she was so great. And it felt like she really was a part of our family. And anyway, so one time we had her over for dinner and she just burst into tears. And she started telling us about how awful her boyfriend had been to her and what she was trying to do. And we helped her navigate the situation. And eventually she broke up with them. But through this whole process, I'm listening to the specifics of what this guy did and was doing to her. And I was so angry. I was so frustrated. I kind of viewed this girl as kind of like my daughter. And I was just so angry. And I was so thankful when she broke up with this guy. Well, fast forward four weeks later, and this is when I'm leading college students directing the ministry. I get a random text from Guess who? This guy. This guy. Biff. The ex-boyfriend, Biff. Uh, and, and when I got it, I immediately set the phone down and I walked away. I was like, I cannot believe this. Mm. And he asked if we could meet up to talk because he had some questions about Jesus. And, and this guy knew that I was a pastor. And in that moment, you know, I put the phone down and walked away. I just thought, no, mm. no way. Because all I could think about was how much he had hurt Mm -hmm. uh, his ex-girlfriend, our babysitter. I didn't want to meet him. I didn't care about what happened to him. I was totally skeptical about his so-called questions about Jesus. You know, I was seeing him with the 2D vision. Eventually, I talked it out and I was like, all right, I'm going to meet with this guy. We ended up meeting and we started with pleasantries. We were at a coffee shop and I'm just thinking the whole time, like, what do you want to say, man? Come on. And then he starts holding back tears and he starts sharing and then he ends up blubbering in the middle of a coffee shop. And he's just, he's literally confessing to me all the ways that he hurt his ex-girlfriend and how sorry he was, not just for the pain he caused her, but because of the pain that he caused Jesus. Hmm. I was shocked. 
I was stunned and I was humbled. And and I genuinely, I think this was this was genuine repentance because he stuck around and he got involved. Why do I tell that story? There is always hope hmm. for repentance. Mm-hmm. I did nothing. You know, I did. That was the definition of detachment, and I could care less. And yet, this guy came, and Jesus was doing something in his life, and I was reminded that there is always hope. I didn't care, but God cared, and He's the one who brought the change, not me. So, because of that, there's always hope. Wow, we've been a lot of places, and we've gone on for a long time. We let's, have. Let's land the plane here, and just two practical takeaways to help you see with some three D vision. Here's number one, whoever that unrepentant person is coming to mind right now, whoever they are, just start praying for them. Pray that they would see the light. Pray that they would have genuine repentance before God. Yeah, and I would just say the second takeaway is to pray for yourself. You know, pray that you can practice these skills of healthy detachment. Pray that you can work with these strategies that we've talked about today. Ask God for that 3D vision so that you can know when you're being manipulated or triangulated and you can have those healthy boundaries and you can seek discernment, you can seek wisdom, and to keep those glasses on, you know, that God is going to give you the wisdom that you need to deal with the unrepentant person in your life. Yeah, the final thing I'm going to say, and it's very humbling, is the reason that we would practice this and think about how to strategically engage, even if it means detaching and putting in consequences and holding some kind of hope when seemingly there is no hope, is because it's the heart of God Mm -hmm. and we follow Jesus. And my gosh, my goodness, holy cow, I am so glad that when he looks at my heart, my unrepentant, stubborn, hardened heart, He never gives up on me, Mm -hmm. and he's always pursuing me. Sometimes that's hurtful. It's not always comfy, but he never gives up. He's relentless in his pursuit and his love, and it's his work that I depend upon him doing in my heart. I can't change myself, Mm -hmm. and it's going to be his work to do something in somebody else's heart. I can't change them. Mm -hmm. That's the thing that keeps us moving forward. So, Austin, thanks. Lynn, thanks. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks for letting us be with you in the weeds of life. We want this resource to bring you hope and to help bridge the gap between where you are and where you want to be. Follow us on Instagram at WithYouInTheWeeds. If you like what you're hearing, text the episode to a friend, like us, and leave a review. Until next time, remember... God is with you in the weeds.